Philippians 2, verses 12 through 8. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, in in 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us that when one member of the body suffers, we all suffer. And when one is honored, we are all honored. This morning, Lord, we want to pray for our sister Joanne, who is suffering. And so, Lord, as she is aching, as she is sore, as she is in pain, we suffer with her. And we ask that even now you would send her miraculous relief, uh, a healing that can't be explained. Lord, would you shower her with your love and your mercy? And Lord, I pray that in her pain, she would know that you care and that you're aware and that you're with her. So have mercy on our sister and and watch over her. And Father, we we pray also for um, Joel and Ashley Schrader as they've both now had COVID and and, uh, need to recover. Lord, thank you for your mercy that their their cases were not so severe that they were hospitalized, that they moved through it pretty quickly. And Lord, we long for them to be restored to our fellowship. And so bring healing in that family as well. And uh, Father, we want to pray again for the Reese family with the passing of Ken's or of, uh, Kevin's father, Ken, and all the circumstances that attend a, mem- a member of the family passing away. And again, Lord, we rejoice for the life that you gave him and the way he served and honored you. And uh, Lord, we just pray for uh, the family to grieve, but with hope, knowing that the resurrection is coming and we will see Ken again. Father, would you be with us now as we turn to this important passage from Philippians? Uh, Help us to see and to understand what it is you're telling us this morning. Holy Spirit, illuminate the page. Protect my mouth that I wouldn't say something that would be dishonoring to you or untrue. But Lord, lead us in in the truth. Your word is truth. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. In uh, 2005, there was an indie pop band called Death Cab for Cutie. they, they did some really kind of peppy, upbeat music. It was really fun stuff. But there was one song that they did in 2005 called I'll Follow You Into the Dark. And as upbeat and as, as, as cool as the, the rhythm of the song was, it was really a materialist love song about death. And so the song begins, love of mine, someday you will die, but I'll be close behind. I'll follow you into the dark. And the way the song ends is, The time for sleep is now. It's nothing to cry about because we'll hold each other soon in the blackest of rooms. There's a dearth of theology there. It's really bad. Oh, I forgot to excuse children, uh, invite children to children's church. I beg your pardon. (laughs) Um, We didn't have them last week, so it threw off my groove. Um, So what's going on in the song is, is it's this 
materialist singing to his his love saying well we're going to die and we're just going to black out of existence and we'll go do that together there's a lot of logical problems with that but that's not really the point that i wanted to bring up from the song in the middle of the song the protagonist explains to us how he lost his faith and it's really revealing he says in catholic school vicious as roman rule i got my knuckles bruised by a lady in black and i held my tongue as she told me, son, fear is the heart of love, so I never went back. So there's a whole lot wrong in that, in that phrase. For him to think that getting his knuckles bruised was as bad as Roman rule is pretty lame. Uh, what are they teaching that kid? You want, you want to know how that would look like if it was really Roman rule? The entrance to the school would be lined with crucifixes and people crucified on them who forgot to pay their tuition. That's how cruel it would be. But I think the point he's making is, is this cruelty that he experienced in this Catholic school was framed around this phrase the nun taught him, which is fear is the heart of love. Now, in the context, can you imagine what this poor boy was feeling? These brutal nuns are, are beating him and telling him, you better fear me, and therefore you'll love me. That, that's how he could probably read it. Or God is this vicious, maniacal beast, and you better fear him, and, and therefore you'll love him. Um, there's a lot of problems with that, <laughs> the way that that's set up. Uh, I don't want to go into all that. I just want to say that as, as weird as that sounds, that fear is the heart of love, there is an element of truth in it. There, there, there is something right about that, but we have to be careful to define what we mean by fear, and more importantly, who we fear. Because what we're going to see this morning is, as we look at our role that we have to enact uh, as we do what Paul has told us to do, which is live lives worthy of the gospel. One of the things he offers us here is fear. But what I want to show you this morning is it's not what you think it is. It's not a negative. So let's take a look at this. Let's, let's dig in and see what's going on. So remember where we're at in, in Paul's letter. So at the middle of chapter one, Paul told us, to live as Christ and to die as gain. And the way he defined to live as Christ was to live is to serve others. And so that's what it means to live as Christ is to serve others, to be there for other people. Then the next thing he tells us at the end of chapter one is he, he reminds us to live lives worthy of the gospel. And we saw at the time that was much more than just right doctrine. That was also practicing what we were going to do. And again, in the context of together, because he tells us strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. Last week at the beginning of chapter two, Paul told us esteem others as more important than yourself. And we said, now, how on earth am I supposed to esteem others more important than myself? I just can't, you know, muscle it up. And he says, this mind is yours in Christ Jesus. And so what we saw last week was some of the most grand theology in all of Christianity, and that is what's called the hypostatic union, the fact that Jesus is both God and man in one person. And that was what he offered to us so that we could live together and, and honor each other and hold one as more important than, than ourselves. That was the example he gives us. So this morning, he's continuing that theme. When we started that in the middle of chapter one, I said, get used to him telling us to esteem others, to care for others, to look to others first because it's going to continue on, and it's going to continue here this morning as well. He's going to press on with that same theme. But what he's going to tell us is, is not just, now go out and try harder. He's going to tell us something that's crucially important for us 
to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. He's going to tell us something really important that will enable us, that will help us to esteem others as more important than ourselves. And so let's take a look. Verse, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, they are his beloved. Remember when we set up the book, when we first introduced the book, I said, what a wonderful relationship he has with this church. They are so concerned for him that when they heard he was in jail in Rome, they sent money, they sent Epaphroditus, they sent their care. There was really genuine concern for him. And so he writes back to them with this love and affection. Yeah, hey, you know, Epaphroditus was sick, almost to the point of death, but he's better now. And don't worry about that. And so there's this genuine affection. So to hear right in the middle of this, my beloved, he's, he's demonstrating for us what it looks like to consider that others as more important than himself, to, to love the body, to love the fellowship. As you have always obeyed, not so now, not only in my presence, but much, much more in my absence. As you have always obeyed, well, always obeyed what? Always obeyed Paul, whatever he told him to do, they did. I think in the context, we get a little bit of better idea. I mean, it might be that, that whatever Paul told him to do, they did. But in this context, what's Paul telling them to do? To live as Christ, serve each other, live lives worthy of the gospel, strive together. In humility, count others as more important than yourself. Humble deference to each other. As you have done that, he says, now continue to do that, even though I'm not there, even though I'm not present with you, much more in my absence. So this is what he's, he's commending them to do. But that's not the end of it. What he says next is incredible. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What does he mean by work out your own salvation with fear and trembling? Well, we need to take this, this sentence apart very carefully. So let's start with the center of it. What are they doing? They're working out their salvation. Their salvation is the point of it. So what does he mean by their salvation? Well, we know from Paul, from reading all of Paul, when he talks about salvation, he is not saying, now you better work really hard and be good enough and then God will like you. His gospel, his message of salvation is, all have fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. And as, as Kyle read for us this morning, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So our, our salvation is, you are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's only because of what Jesus has done for you that you can be justified. For Paul, that is salvation. It is something that is given to us. All we do is believe that it's ours. That's salvation. So if that's our salvation, what does he mean by work out your salvation? Um, the word behind work out, it means to do, to accomplish, to bring about. Now, if we say we have to bring about our own salvation, we have to work really hard to accomplish our salvation, then we have redefined salvation from what, it, what Paul means by it. So what can he possibly mean by work out or accomplish your own salvation? I think a better way to approach it, actually, the word is really complicated. He uses it a bunch. He uses the, the word a whole lot of ways. And it, it, when you look through the translation, look up that Greek word and look through the translations, it's translated all over the place. It's, it's done in very different ways. So there's a lot, a range of meanings to it. But what I think he's talking about here is he says, work out your salvation. That word work out is an imperative. It's not a suggestion. It is his command to them, do this. 
obey, not just when I'm there, but when I'm absent. What do I want you to obey? I want you to work out your own salvation. So how, how does that work if we understand salvation correctly? What does he mean by that? I, the best analogy I could get my head around for this is a large theater company. In a large theater company, community theater is going to be a little different, but a large theater company, when a, an actor is hired for a role on the stage, the actress said, okay, now go out and act out your part. And the, the, the actor walks onto the stage. Is the first thing they do start building the, the um, set? No, that's already done for them. That's taken care of. Okay. Well, then go out and act out your part. Well, the first thing they have to do is go sew their costumes. And that's what the, their first thing they do on the stage. No, the costume is done by somebody else. It's provided for them. You put your costume on, go out on the stage. They don't adjust the lighting. Somebody's taking care of that. They don't adjust the sound. They don't write the play. This has all been done and provided for them. What is their role? I want you to step out on the stage and enact your role. Do what you've been hired to do. Just act. Everything else has been provided and taken care of for you. And I think that's what Paul is getting at when he says, work out your salvation. You have been given all that you need to step onto the stage and to act your part, to enact your role. The, the, the stage is set. God created the universe. He has ordained how everything will fold out. He has written the play. Now he's telling you, put on your costume. What's our costume? Well, if we understand salvation correctly, it is a white robe, which is Jesus' righteousness wrapped around us. And we step out onto the stage and we act our part. That's what he's telling us to do. So we go out and we work out our salvation. I think this parallels what Paul had said earlier about live a life worthy of the gospel. He's not saying live a life to be worthy of the gospel. Here he's not saying work out to be saved. He says, this is the state you're in. You are saved. You have believed the gospel. The good news is you are justified by faith alone. Now behave like that's true. So believer, put on your robe. Put on, put on your costume. That's the robe of righteousness that wraps around you in Christ. Take a look at your script. What is your script? This is scripture. God has given us doctrine. There's a book by one of my seminary professors, um, uh, Kevin Van Hooser. And his, the name of the book is Doctrine as Drama. And his, his thought is when we're given doctrine... The doctrine of the Bible, all that the scriptures have to say, that's given to us, not so that we can sit and stare at it and go, yes, that's very interesting, but so that we can enact it. We can live out our lives according to what we've been told. So that's, that's I think, the, the picture that, that Paul is painting here. Work out your own salvation. Your salvation has been given to you. Now live according to that. Work according to that. Live that way. So if salvation is a free gift of God, he has given us faith. He has given us his Holy Spirit. He sealed us. He's wrapped us in the righteousness of Christ. We are justified by faith alone. If that's our salvation, and we're commanded to now just go out and act like that, just believe that and let that affect your life, then why does he say with fear and trembling? What do we have to be afraid of? It's all been done for me. I just step out onto the stage and be who I've been created to be. Why do we have to do it with fear and trembling? The concept of fear in the Bible is extremely complicated. And, and when we talk about fear here, what are we supposed to be afraid of? Well, fear of man, that is, 
being respecters of mankind and being worried about what other people think and, and trying to curry favor with others, that's universally condemned in the Bible. Is There's no good fear of man. The only fear that we're commanded to have is the fear of God. So if God has done our salvation and he's telling us to work it out, then that fear must be of God, the fear and trembling. So what does it mean to fear the Lord? What are we getting at when we say fear the Lord? Uh, I am guilty personally of saying, well, it is uh, 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 reverence. Uh, it is awe of God. It is that. It's, it's, it's that kind of thing. Um, it's more complicated. Let me, let me show you one example of how complicated the fear is. This is from Exodus 20. Israel has arrived at Mount Sinai. God has appeared on the top of the mountain. The mountain is shaking. It's covered in smoke. And this voice booms out the Ten Commandments. And it sounds just incredible, this horn blowing. And it's, it's a terrifying experience. And so beginning in verse 18 of Exodus 20, now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, and the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to them, do not fear, for God has, has come to test you that you may fear him. that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off and Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Did you hear what Moses told them? Don't be afraid. God did this so you'd be fair to him. So do you see that there's this, this concept where fear is, there's a right fear and there's a wrong fear. There's a right way to fear and there's a wrong way to fear. And so uh, there's a book that I'm, I'm currently reading called Rejoice and Tremble by um, um, Michael Reeves. Uh, he wrote a great book called Delighting in the Trinity. So I was really excited to get this. He's, he's doing a survey of what right fear and wrong fear is. And so on the chapter on the right fear, he kind of sum sums up, here's the problem when we try to define fear as something other than fear. And so he looks at a couple of Hebrew words, and then he goes on and he says, uh, analyzing these two words shows us that the fear of God is no mild manner reserved or limp thing. It is startlingly physical. It, I'm sorry. It is a startlingly physical, overpowering reaction. And so respect and reverence are simply too weak and gray to stand in as synonyms for the fear of God. Awe seems a much better fit, though even it doesn't quite capture the physical intensity, the happy thrill, or the exquisite delight that leans toward instead of away from the Lord. In fact, those other words can be actively misleading, making us think of this right fear as a response to only certain qualities of God and not others. For example, if we use the word awe, we tend to think of fear as a response to God, only God's transcendence and power, not his graciousness. Or take the word respect, it is a strange term for a response to God's love. And so it's unbalanced substitute for the word fear. Similarly, reverence can sound too stiff and unresponsive. Not that these are wrong words. It's simply that they, they are not perfect synonyms for the fear of God. So I think he makes a great point there in saying, when we talk about the fear of the Lord, 
we want to slim it down and say, well, it's reverence for the, it's, it's respect for God. And, and it, it is, but that's not complete. There's a reason that God picked, picked the word fear to say fear of the Lord. So what is the fear of the Lord? Well, the fear of the Lord, I think, is when, when we try to get to what's going on there, it is to look at God in his immensity, to recognize the unfettered power. We sang that uh, awesome God, that, that he is unstoppable, unchangeable. We, we have no influence over him. We cannot stop him. He is all powerful. When I used to commute to Chicago, I would stand on the train station. And I remember one time I was standing a little too close to the edge. They got a yellow stripe by the edge of the, the train tracks. And I, I was a little too close to that. And I had my back turned and a train came sailing through really fast. And I kind of jumped away. I was like, oh my gosh, that is a lot of metal going at a very high rate of speed. And I just had this flutter of respect for that train's really moving. And it would turn me into a pile of goo with, and not even notice. And, and that's kind of the, the sense that we get when we consider who God is and all of who he is, all of what he does. He's this unfettered power, this, this, this majesty, this, this strength that we can't even comprehend. He speaks and the universe leaps into being. And we stand before this and we go, I'm powerless against this. I have no way of, of resisting who this is. He's that immense. And, and it strikes a little fear in our heart, but also since it's the, the Lord that we're fearing, instead of stepping away from that train track, we lean toward it. Instead of running away, we go, it's terrifying how much power he has, but it's beautiful at the same time. It, it's looking out, when we were moving out here, we stopped at the Grand Canyon and, and we kind of came up to the edge and looked and Lisa and I both kind of took a little bit of a step back. It's beautiful, it draws you in. But at the same time, you go, that's a long way down. That's a big hole in the ground. And so you step back. And it's that same feeling with God is there's this immensity, this giantness to who he is. And it's alluring. But at the same time, you get there and you go, oh, he's pretty big. He's much bigger than I anticipated. And so we're, when we talk about the fear of the Lord, we're trying to encapsulate all of those feelings, all of those thoughts and emotions together. And so when we talk about the fear of the Lord, it's not a fear that repulses us, that we run away from him, that we go, oh, he's terrible. I don't want anything to do with him or Freddy Krueger or, or one of the horror things. It's, that's not the fear of the Lord. That's the wrong kind of fear. The right kind of fear has an element of respect. It has an element of awe. It has a, an element of love. It draws us to while at the same time scaring us a little bit. So why would Paul then tell us, work out your own salvation with this kind of fear? God has done everything for me. He has demonstrated everything is in my favor. He's done everything to bring me to salvation. Why should I fear and tremble? The very next verse, verse 13. Why should I fear and tremble? Because for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You are called to work out your salvation, to enact your role, to be who God has now formed you into being, because it's God who is at work in you. He, he doesn't just shove you out on the stage and go, good luck. Nor does he shove you out on the stage and shove his hand up your back and do a, a, a ventriloquist dummy. The command to work out your, your salvation is an active command. You have to do this with fear and trembling. But it's that fear of respect. It's that fear of awe. It's that fear that draws you close to him because he is at work in you. 
This is what God has done in you. He didn't just say, you're saved, now go figure it out. He said, you're saved. Now I want you to behave in a specific way. I want you to live a life that, that you were designed to live that was right and good. It is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work. Why did you believe the gospel? When, when you came to faith, why did you believe it? Why is it that the previous time when you heard the gospel, you didn't believe it? And now this time you hear the gospel and you did. Was it because it was a better illustration this time? Because the person presenting it just seemed a lot more passionate. No, it, it was God who was at work in you to will. One of the things God does when he saves us is he changes our desires. He purifies our desires. The way the Bible talks about that is the Holy Spirit comes and he gives you a new heart. He removes a heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh. And on that heart of flesh, he then inscribes his law so that you are desiring, you are inclined, you are bent towards obedience. God did that for you. God is at work in you to will, to desire what is right and good, to love what is lovely. He's at work in you to will, but also to work. Ephesians says, God has prepared before the foundation of the world good works for you to walk in them. He's already prepared the things that you must do. He's written the script. He's picked you for the role. Here's your part in the play. Step out on the stage. He has given you the work that you should do. But he doesn't replace us. He doesn't put a shadow puppet of, of us or a cardboard cutout. We were talking this morning about, about football games. SoFi Stadium opened last year, but it never had a fan in it because of the COVID thing. So you know what they did? They put cardboard cutouts in the seats. People would pay to have their picture put on a cord. God is not doing that in salvation. He's not saying, now go pretend to be here. He's telling you, I want you to do this. But he's at work in you to will and to do. And why does he do that? Why is he calling us to act this way, to act out our role in life, not pretend, but to be who we are with fear and trembling? If he's the one who's working and who's, who's willing you to do these things, because what he says at the end of verse 13, for his good pleasure. Now, he is not sitting back and go, entertain me. Make this good. What he's saying is, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would have eternal life. It is my good pleasure that you come to me, that you be mine. We'll see that in the rest of this verse. It's not, he's sitting there, this better be good. He's saying, I love you. I delight in you. I want you to be who I created you to be. It brings me the most happiness to see you behave, to be the person that you are. And so I'm, I'm working in you to change your desires and to enable you to work. Now, work out your salvation. Just go enact it. Be who you've been created to be for my good pleasure, because I desire you. I desire. I want to be there with you. I want you to be with me. So that's the picture Paul paints. Again, we're getting this heavy-duty theology so that we can live correctly. Because the very next thing he says is, do all things without grumbling and disputing. That's the application of what God has done within you, is don't grumble. Um, so which things are we not supposed to grumble about? Which are the things that we, we are called to not grumble about? The easy things? Uh, the things we are comfortable with doing, uh, things we like, 
We are called to do all things without grumbling or complaining. All things. Now put that in the context of Philippians. The end of chapter one, Paul says, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I have. Philippians uh, 1, 29 and 30. Suffer for his sake. Engage in a conflict without disputing or grumbling. Oh my gosh, how can I do that? I have a hard time if I can't find a parking spot. I, I, I grumble and complain. Well, because God is at work within you. God is, is working to bring you to the image of his son. He's leading you away from the grumbling and complaining into something that can say, this really stinks, but Lord, it's from your hand. So as we think of Joanne this morning, she woke up in great pain, crying. For her, suffering is not some, some tangential idea. It's not some faraway concept that, that she can't experience. She's experiencing it physically. And, and, and how on earth can we look to her and say, how can she do that without grumbling and complaining, without disputing? The only way that can happen is by the miracle of God at work within you. That's the only way that's possible. By the way, we have to suffer with her. We have to be in pain with her. We have to feel with her the suffering and the, and the discomfort and the, the difficulty that she's experiencing. That's the whole point that Paul's been making up to this point, isn't it? Do things together, strive together, think of the other person as more important, help the other person, do those kind of things. So he tells us to do this without grumbling or arguing or disputing. Why? What, what, what is the end goal of that? Verse 15, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish. Why is God at work in us to will and to do? Why is it that we are to work out our salvation? Because he wants us. What would make him the most happy is that we are blameless and innocent, children of God. What family are you in? Who, who is your father? What are the habits that your family have? What, what is mealtime like with your family? What are the rules for the house? When do you have to be in? When do you clean your room? What time does the trash go out? What are the things that you do? How do you spend time together? When does the TV turn on? When does it turn off? That's your family. That's your living together. And that's what God is saying here is that you may be blameless and innocent children of God in his family, living as if you are a child of God. Work out your salvation. Live a life worthy of the gospel. Be a child of God, innocent and blameless. Now, eschatologically, in the, in the final judgment, we are innocent and blameless because we have been given Christ's righteousness. We, we are clothed in his righteousness when we stand before God. And so he says, not only not guilty, actively righteous. But in our lives, too, there are things we can do which are less than blameless and not quite innocent. And Paul's telling us, no, work out your salvation. The salvation, the reality of who you are, work that out so that you are blameless and innocent. So that you can do these things and be children of God without blemish. Live lives appropriate to the gospel because this is true of you, not in order to make it true of you. So he wants us to live 
as children of God, innocent and blameless. And then he goes on in verse 15, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you may shine as lights in the world. This generation, every generation since Adam took a bite out of the fruit, has been twisted and crooked. Whereas God says, this is how things should be, they all go that way. Paul wants us to live blameless and innocent as children of God without blemish in the midst of a generation like that, twisted and crooked, bent on weird things, approving what's not right. Um, what does that look like? How, how, how does that play out? Uh, R.C. Sproul tells a story. A friend of a friend um, was assigned to a golf team. He, he went on to play golf, and, and there was a bunch of people, and he was paired up with Billy Graham. And so he played a round of golf with Billy Graham. And so when he came back from the 18 holes, um, his friend said, so tell me, how was it golfing with Billy Graham? He said, I don't need that guy pushing his religion down my throat. And he went over and he grabbed a bucket of balls and went over to the driving range, and just hammered him out. And so his friend was kind of like, whoa, dude. So he comes back after he's cooled off. He said, was Billy really that forceful? Was he that? He, no, he didn't say a thing. I just had a bad round of golf. Why would he look at Billy Graham and say, he's trying to push his religion down my throat? Because this is a twisted and crooked generation looking at a man who they knew what he stood for. There's no question. So in that instance, Billy didn't have to say a thing. It was clear what he was all about. And that man read that as he's trying to push his religion down my throat because he was angry and Billy's not angry. And so he's wrestling with that. So what does it look like for us to live in the midst of a crooked generation where we will shine as lights in the world? But when you're, when you're living a life worthy of the gospel, when you're working at your, your own salvation with fear and trembling, you look weird. In this crooked and perverse generation, this generation that wants to hold, head in an opposite direction of who God is, you look weird. You stand out. Why is this person like that? I've just gossiped about eight people in the office and they just smile and nod. They haven't said a thing. Where's the gossip? You got to give it back to me. And in their heart of hearts, they go, you know, gossip's not right. And that person is now convicting me of that. As we do that kind of thing, as we live as children of God, innocent and blameless, we stand out as lights in the world. So Paul then goes on, he says in verse 16, holding fast to the word of life, this is the word of life. We talked about in Sunday school this morning, the distance or the difference between law and gospel. The law says, do this and live. Don't do this and die. That's not what the word of life is. The word of life says, Jesus has done it for you. Trust in him and believe and you will live. The righteous shall live by faith. That's the word of faith. We hold fast to that. That's the only way we can stand firm in this crooked generation because it's pushing us in that same direction constantly. So we need to hold fast to something that's not moving. That's the word of life. Verse 16 continues, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. In the day of Christ, we saw that in verse, or chapter one, verse six, that's, that's the resurrection, the day, of, um, the, the day in which we receive our reward. When, when we see Christ face to face, in the day of Christ, Paul says, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Now, when he says proud, he's not proud in a negative sense. He, he, he is looking to the Philippians and go, 
I helped that church get started. Look at, look at how they're behaving. Look at the way they're walking. I am so proud of them. And so when, when Jesus comes and he judges the living and the dead, and he looks to the Philippians, he goes, well done, my good and faithful servants. Enter into your master's joy. Paul can go, yes, that's what I was aiming for. That was what I was hoping for. He wants to be proud of him on that, proud of them on that day. And so his approach to that is this, verse 17. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. The, the sacrificial offering, when, when the innocent animal is brought in to be offered in the sacrifice in the temple, it, it's laid on the altar and it's burned up. And sometimes they could do a drink offering where they would take some wine and pour it over top of that as it's burning up. And the drink offering is offered with it. When the people come into the temple and they offer this offering, did everybody look and go, man, that was a great lamb. Wasn't that wonderful? That was the best lamb ever. He, he just did everything right. That is such a great lamb. No, they come into the temple and they offer the sacrifice for the purpose of worshiping God, to the glory and the praise of God, to his glory. The, the offering is, Lord, I want to be more, I want more of you. I want to have fellowship with you. Here, take this offering. The drink offering poured out on top of it is a way of saying, Lord, here's even more. I want more of you. Pour out more on me. So Paul says, if my role is to be poured onto your offering, your offering is what's being offered, and I'm happy to be part of it. I'm glad and rejoice with you. Likewise, also, you should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul's in prison. He's about to go meet Caesar and offer his defense of the gospel. He, he wants them to be united in purpose, to be joined together in purpose, to think of each other as more important. And he says, rejoice in that and rejoice with me as I go off to face possible execution. And while we have a rule in our constitution that says execution shall not be cruel or unusual, the Romans delighted in it. The, the more cruel and the more unusual they could come up with, the better. And Paul says, I want you to rejoice with me. Why? Because to live is Christ and to die is gain. So whether I face this death or, or I come back to you, it's, it's all a plus. God's in control. So when, when you go back and think about that Death Cab for Cutie song, the, the poor boy says, the heart of love is fear. And so I never went back. The context he heard that in was this cruel nun whacking his knuckles for doing any little minor infraction. And so you can understand why he might have a distorted view of that. The nun probably had a distorted view of it. But there's also a hint of truth in there too. If we understand fear correctly and we fear the Lord, not the nun or the ruler. And that fear of the Lord, that fear and trembling that he calls us to is how it's part of the power to work out our salvation, to live lives according to the, the gospel in, in proportion to the gospel to be, to enact, to do what salvation means, to show it. If, if, if you've been saved 40 years and haven't changed a whit, you can see no fruit in your life, no need for the church, no need. I hardly ever read the, the Bible. I go to church maybe on, on Christmas if I feel like it. Is that living a life in accordance with the salvation you have received? It's not. It's making a mockery of it. 
And so that's Paul's admonition to us, that fear of the Lord, that realization he is so much bigger, so much more powerful, so much more awesome, so much more fearsome. That's the fear that drives us into him and saying, that's the side I want to be on. In the Chronicles of Narnia, when the children meet Aslan, one of the questions is, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver kind of laughs and goes, of course he's not safe. He's a lion. But he is good. And, and that's the feeling that they get when they finally meet Aslan is here's this giant lion, terrifying in his existence, and yet at the same time beautiful and drawing us in. That's the power. That, that's the, the thing that God gives you to equip you to live a life worthy of the gospel is that fear of the Lord. It's, it's not a negative. It's not a bad thing. But we have to nuance it so much because the world has distorted it into something horrible. Fear is, is something dreadful. It's, it's something we make movies about. But that's not the fear of the Lord. So, my beloved, I want you to go out and enact your role. You, you have been given everything you need the stage is set, the script is written, the lighting is on, the crowd is gathered. Go out and enact your part. You have the script. You know your role. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is the Lord who is at work in you to will and to do. Let's pray. Lord, your word says over and over again, the fear of you is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of you is a right and a good thing to do. And so, Lord, I pray that we would not water you down to make you manageable. Find a way to shave that mane off that lion and, and make it more of a pussycat. Lord, would you be large in our eyes? Would you be terrifying with your power and your majesty? And yet at the same time, Lord, we know that all of that power, all of that majesty, all of that immensity, all of that infinite understanding and knowledge is good. And Lord, it is bent on our behavior. You want us to be your children. And so you have given us the gospel. Lord, fill us with appropriate and a right fear of you, that we may tremble and lean in instead of tremble and run away. Lord, we ask this for your glory, so that you might delight in us. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.